even with the companies that I'm working with, probably their next step, I want them to graduate from me, from the charitable funding into for-profit funding. But the next step is probably going to be impact investors, which is growing. And I don't think it's going to go away because I think the younger generation in particular finds the idea of pure profit maximization distasteful. And many members of the younger generation want to consider the social good and the social impact alongside financial returns. And so there is, you know, I, th- I, I wouldn't be surprised if there are certain things that kind of date us in the generations and I'm Gen X. So like, there's a lot of that for me, but I wouldn't be surprised if when we're older, you can tell it's, you know, the equivalent of a boomer will be someone who just talks about profit maximization. I can see like snickering from the younger crowd because I think it's going to be a mix of what are you doing for the world? What, what good is being done? Welcome to The Climb. I'm your co-host, Michael Moore. And today we are sitting down with Lindsay Androsky. She serves as the president and CEO of the Royvant Foundation. She joined Royvant Sciences as one of its earliest employees and built and led the team responsible for the in-licensing and acquisition of more than 30 therapeutic programs, resulting in the launch and incubation of 16 subsidiary of biotech and several successful IPOs. That's just the beginning of her bio, but rather than me continue to read and uh, and inform you, we're going to turn it over to Lindsay. But before we do that, we need to warn our listeners, they're going to hear a familiar voice rejoining us today. I'm excited to announce that Bob Wirma is back in the saddle. He's fired up and he's ready to go. Bob, tell us what you've been doing for the last couple of months. I have been out of commission here last couple months, or I guess maybe it's more than that. Six months has been wild in my world. Moved into the president role here about a year ago, and that has uplifted me in a lot of different ways and a lot of directions. We had some changes in the business that required some more attention from me. And then also probably most importantly, I took a good about month and a half with my now wife to finally get married after the COVID. Two times we pushed the wedding during COVID. And then we spent a month in Africa on our honeymoon. It was just, it was wonderful. So now I'm, I'm back to real life at this point, which is great. And Lindsay, I don't know if you've ever been to Puebla, Mexico, but uh, I was lucky enough to be invited to the Wirma Bueno wedding and it was spectacular. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Did you go on safari, I assume? We did. We did safaris. We went to Rwanda. We saw the gorillas in Rwanda, which I would say, you know, anybody listening, you need to go. It is a life-changing experience, no doubt. And the safaris are incredible. I kid you not, you're the second person in a week who has said that exact thing about Rwanda and the gorillas. Rwanda is, there's, I mean, Rwanda's interesting, right? 28 years ago, there was a genocide in Rwanda. And we went there knowing that, and you go to the city and like you have these expectations of what that city might be when you land. And we got there and it just completely exceeded what my expectations or thought of what it was going to be. The people, the culture, it was incredible. And then seeing the mountain gorillas 10 yards, 15 yards from you is, I mean, that's just a whole different experience. You're a little on edge for the the first kind of 10, 15 minutes, but then you're just there with them. And it was, it was definitely life-changing. Bob, did you have to take a COVID test to go see the gorillas? So we did. We uh, It was really interesting because we, I mean, you, you learn a lot about it, but they're very, how, how important the gorillas are to their economy and what they're bringing there is, so the, the gorillas are, they're protecting them a lot. You have the Diane Fossey Foundation, and then she is supported big time by Ellen DeGeneres is super involved there too. So like there's a lot of money being put into the economy there to not only save the gorillas, but to, to enhance the economy of the country. And we did, we had to take the COVID test to make sure that we didn't have COVID to go see the gorillas. The crazy thing about that is two weeks before our wedding, or actually it was a week before the wedding, my wife got COVID and she wasn't concerned about going to Mexico for her wedding. She's like, we are doing that, no doubt. And it doesn't matter, but she said, you know, you can test positive for COVID post 
COVID for up to, you know, they're here as long as 90 days. So as we're going, we're going to see the gorilla. She's like so nervous. She's going to test positive and she's getting all these tips from friends. Like just take a little bit of Vaseline and put some Vaseline in your nose and that'll, <laughs> you know, it'll screw up the test. And we're like all these things, but luckily it all worked out. But real, real quick sidebar before we dive in, when we were there and we were talking to him, the one thing that was really cool to hear was the gorillas during the time that COVID, everything shut down. The gorillas actually, they, the guides told us they came down into the villages to look for the people because they hadn't seen people in so long because they're used to having them as part of their daily lives. That was pretty wild to me. That's interesting. Well, Bob, we are so excited to have you back. And let's jump in with Lindsay. Lindsay, I'm excited to, to have this conversation with you and go down this path. You and I share a common thread in our being members and supporting of the, the Alder Initiative. So it's, it's always nice to have a, a brother or sister join us on the podcast. But before we jump into some specifics and, and Bob and I do what we do, kind of hamming and egging this thing back and forth, just give our audience a little background in, in the Lindsay, where you're from where you went to school, MIT, and kind of <laughs> how you got to where you are today. And that'll be the basis of the conversation. Yeah, sure. I think I have to put in a plug, though, for our uh, Dallas older crew, and in particular, the, the TEDx event that our mutual friend Danielle is putting on in October that I will be speaking at and a couple other older members as well. So any listeners that are interested in coming should get tickets. Um, TEDx Victory Place. No, that's perfect. And Johnny, put a put a plug uh, when we put this podcast out with the with the date and the link. And I was going to ask too, for, for those who don't know, maybe a quick, what's the Alder Initiative for those who don't know? The way I describe Alder is it's, it's a group of senior professionals with a common theme in their lives, which is they don't want to wait until they are old and wealthy to make a difference in the world. And so there's a lot of socialization that goes on. Obviously, a lot of the relationship building is a big benefit, but there are calls to action and there's exposure at a very high level to all sorts of issues facing our country and the world today. And that blend of social and thought-provoking activities has, was really attractive to me. And I used to be on the board uh, in the New York City chapter, and now we've moved away from geographic hubs. And we're all members at large, which is fun because I get to get, get to know people that I didn't know well before, like Michael. No, that's exactly right. And it, it, the, the, the generational leadership aspect of it and how do we whether it's, you know, in the workplace or at home or in your community, leave this place better than we found it is, is certainly something that resonates with me. So with that, Lindsay, uh, start us off with, with you and where you're from. Yeah, sure. So I am a native of the upper Midwest. And an important uh, trick is that after I have a cocktail or two, people will say, oh, I didn't know you're from Minnesota because I will fall into a Canadian accent. <laughs> and so um, as Michael mentioned, I, I moved to Boston. I went to MIT for college. I am the first person in my family to go to college. And so that was, uh, there's a lot of funny stories about that. So two are that uh, first, even my parents tried to talk me out of it because they didn't know what MIT was. My dad actually tried to bribe me to go to a well-known sports school by saying he would get me a fancy car if I did that because he knew the big sports teams. And I said, well, if I go to Boston, I don't need a car. So that's how we got around that. And, uh, and then Goodwill Hunting came out. They actually filmed that my freshman year. And all of a sudden, my parents were very proud to have me at MIT because that, that, <laughs> I mean, that really put MIT into the mainstream. I had other strange experiences too where someone said to me, oh, um, where are you going to go to college? And I said, MIT. And they said, what's that? And I said, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And they said, oh, you're really smart. You should go to a four-year college. You don't, you can make it there. You don't need to go to a technical <laughs> school. So um, it was, uh, it was not in the, the mainstream from uh, where I was from to put it in the least. So when they, when they figured it out and what a prestigious school that was, did you reconnect with them and say, how do you like them apples? <laughs> I've done variations of that most of my life since then. So yes, yes. 
the other funny part of it is that they're going back to the Canadian accent. I, when I started MIT, it was literally when the movie Fargo came out. So I was teased mercilessly about my accent because I'd say, oh no, I need to use the phone. Um, and so <laughs> I got that out of my system probably at record speed <laughs> and, and trained myself to speak in a much more bland way that is, you know, a little maybe Midwestern, but not upper Midwestern. So yeah. And then after that, I, uh, I left Boston. I went to Los Angeles for a few years. I was a strategy consultant for a group that was a spinoff of McKinsey. So just doing general consulting, merger integration, things like that for three years. I had a really fun time. Uh, I was staffed for almost a year in London and I called that my trust fund year because I was, you know, they gave me an apartment I had a travel budget and I could eat out at all the nice restaurants. And so that was a very fun experience. My first time living abroad, which was fantastic. Then I went to do a JD and MBA at the University of Chicago. I spent four years there and decided I really liked finance. I've always been a math person more than a humanities person, but I wanted to go be a trial lawyer. And so I did stuff with my business school classmates, like get a CFA. There was a whole group of us doing that. But then I went and I spent a decade as a trial lawyer. And it was actually very fun to be a math person who is a trial lawyer. I think it also helped being a woman because most lawyers are scared of math. And every case involves tax account, you know, taxes, accounting, finances. And I was always the person who handled all of those witnesses. And I, can't, I, I don't think it was hard to figure out that I knew that stuff, but uh, no one, none of my witnesses figured it out, which I say it was poor lawyer, lawyering on their part. So the, I have very fond memories of being in depositions where someone was giving me a flippant response about why the balance sheet said this. And I would play dumb. I'd say, I just, I'm so sorry. Can you just walk me through that one more time? I'm not. <laughs> and, then, and then in court, you know, I would get to use that against them. So it was a good time. And then I went and I became a federal prosecutor. So I spent four years in Alexandria, Virginia, as one of the first hires right when they launched the cybercrime unit. So that was, you know, cutting edge thing. This was in 2010 and opened that up. And I, I got on board from the very beginning and we did very cool cases involving, you know, cyber national security. So I was on the Snowden case and the Manning and WikiLeaks case, as well as some big copyright infringement cases that I'm sure you guys would not know, but my Georgetown University babysitters knew because it was a, it was a, <laughs> it was a website that put everything on the internet like the day it came out in theaters and we took that down. And that was one of the first times I think Anonymous actually came back at the government because we took the site down and later that day, the, the entire DOJ website was taken down by Anonymous the hacking group and in retaliation for our takedown. So it was, I had some wild times there being involved in that. And then I went to launch a practice group at a private law firm, went back to a private law firm and uh, was doing that for about a little more than a year when one of my friends from MIT called uh, out of the blue and asked me to come and be one of the first employees at Roybian Sciences, which was trying to do drug development in a more efficient way, taking advantage of some flaws in the system. And as I always say, colloquial, colloquially free riding off of the billions of dollars of research and development that is done by lots of companies and never moved forward to patients. A lot of that, a lot of that decision-making is because the industry is faddish and because people, new CEOs come in and want to make their own Stamps, so they will pull out of therapeutic areas where there are good drugs in the pipeline, but they just want to narrow the focus. This was really fascinating for me to learn and see as coming in as an outsider um, to the industry. So since 2016, I've been in biotech and I was with the, the mothership, I guess I would say, uh, for about five years. And then about two years ago, I launched a social impact fund within under the corporate umbrella. And we do the same things. It's venture philanthropy. So I operate as a venture capitalist. I invest and I incubate companies, but I'm doing it through a nonprofit entity. And what that does is it frees me up to invest in or pursue projects that while profitable, 
probably wouldn't reach the return levels that our for-profit investors would require. But that was one of the inefficiencies I saw. There are a lot of things that could really help patients and be good for the world. And I didn't think that we should say no to them because merely the profits were not high enough. And so the nonprofit vehicle kind of freed me up to say yes to those projects. And then a big fun part of that is that all the employees at Roy Van Sciences get to volunteer their time and expertise on my projects. And that has been very fulfilling for the employee base because a lot of times if you do something for a nonprofit, it's it's kind of generic or it's not, it's, it's rare that it is your specific professional expertise that you're delivering. And so this model allows people to you know, if they're a regulatory expert to provide regulatory advice, if they are, you know, a clinical trial expert to give guidance on that. And it's been very well received and a fun project. So Lindsay, let me, let me see if I understand this right. So the, the social impact fund is, is nonprofit and therefore it doesn't, it can invest in ideas, concepts, startups, initiatives that not necessarily have to call it live up to the stringent idea that it's got to be a 4x return or this type of IRR or whatever, right? Is that sort of a an unintended consequence of the way capitalism works is that some good ideas can't get off the ground because we have this expectation that if we put money into it, it needs to return this? Yeah, absolutely. I see that every day. And so even, even with the companies that I'm working with, probably their next step. I want them to graduate from me, from the charitable funding into for-profit funding. But the next step is probably going to be impact investors, which is growing. And I don't think it's going to go away because I think the younger generation in particular finds the idea of pure profit maximization distasteful. And many members of the younger generation want to consider the social good and the social impact alongside financial returns. And so there is, you know, I, th- I, I wouldn't be surprised if there are certain things that kind of date us in the generations and I'm Gen X. So like, there's a lot of that for me, but I wouldn't be surprised if when we're older, you can tell it's, you know, the equivalent of a boomer will be someone who just talks about profit maximization. I can see like snickering from the younger crowd, because I think it's going to be a mix of what are you doing for the world? What, what good is being done? are you not harming the world? I mean, ESG stuff is big too. That's and, what I was going to say. Yeah. And I'm actually, uh, one other fun thing I'm doing is I'm teaching ESG investing at Duke this fall in the economics department. And cause there's, a, it, and that's because there's such a demand for it from the, from the students and not sufficient internal expertise to meet the demand. So that's another signal I'm taking as to, what, where the young people are headed once they are the ones writing the checks and making the investment decisions. But you know, the, the bottom line is that even today, the companies that we're working with, which can greatly expand healthcare access or improve outcomes for underserved groups, which is the areas that I focus on, they're having a hard time jumping right from me to traditional venture capital investors. And so there's, there's got to be this middle ground right now, which is you know, usually the impact space. So Lindsay, talk about that because when you talk about like when I hear venture capital, right, and you hear some of these things and I being 37, you know, I'd say I fall into that group, which is like, I, I understand we got to make money, but like, what are we doing to your, your point of the Alder initiative? What are we doing that's for the longer term? And Michael, one of the things I think about when I think about that, we just had Simon Sinek speak at our partner offsite about the infinite game, right? And the infinite game, I think what he talks about there is just like, how are we building a longer term thing than just that profit maximization? When I think about the venture capital space, right, is a lot of these companies come in and then they get funded and one of those investors want. They all want just their highest returns to move on, sell to private equity, and that goes through the chain. And all of a sudden you look up in five years and that initial initiative that you were maybe trying to accomplish that may have some social good has completely gone out the window at the expense of what? I mean... Are you seeing more in the venture space that is spending time in this now than in the past? Yeah, this is really funny that you bring up because I spend a lot of time thinking about this right now. And my read of the ESG landscape is that the extent to which it's adopted and the impact it makes is almost entirely right now investor driven. And investors really have the power 
because they come in early to shape what that looks like. And so look, you know, having run a deal team, a very, very busy deal team, uh, the way I started thinking about this was when you get to the point where it's a, it's a traditional corporation or it's private equity, that's too late because I don't actually expect them to say, okay, we're going to reduce our profits or, or we're even just going to dilute our profits somewhat by doing things that are good for society, but you know, we'll reduce our, you know, our profit margin. But if you go to the earlier space, I know like if, let's say if you take a, take a company or take a initiative and there are some embedded provisions in there that are directed towards social good, I don't think that'll kill the deal as long as it is not going to be unprofitable. So the way I'm thinking about this is how can we step in at the venture capital stage to encourage provisions that are good for the world, not bad for business, because I want binding commitments to do it. And I don't want to kill the deal that's going to later have to happen to bring things to commercialization or scale. So it's really funny that you say that, Bob, because that's forefront on my mind. Lindsay, I was going to ask with ESG in particular, right? Like a lot of this of what I've heard, right? This is starting to come into my world and my business and some of my clients that I work with. But a lot of this is kind of started in Europe. It feels like to me from what I'm hearing. And now it's coming here. So can you maybe share some of your your thoughts and ideas on that and what maybe some of that influences? Yeah, it's interesting because this isn't the only thing that you know, it starts in Europe, right? The the internet privacy rules start there. We tend to be a laggard here in the United States when it comes to civil society focused measures or, you know, citizen rights measures. And I think that probably is just a byproduct of being a very capitalist society. And yes, so one of the things that we'll be diving into from in my class this fall is the SEC, you're probably aware of this, the SEC just put out guidance on making climate disclosures mandatory or, or a, sorry, it's proposed rules, and as well as rules for funds that call themselves ESG. And so that's the first foray we've seen. And, you know, who knows the the regulatory process, proposed rules don't necessarily mean anything, which is important for people to know. But the fact that the SEC is for the first time paying attention to this uh, really matters. Companies are going to have, you know, they're doing some of this anyway, particularly companies who have operations outside of the U.S. But even, you know, the accounting standards boards have started implementing things like this a lot. And then the ratings companies. One fascinating thing I've learned as I've gotten more familiar with this area is the extent to which a ratings company can can you know shift a company's mindset on this. So the, the number one thing I hear is, well, we started caring about it when our investors started asking questions. So which is why you know I said this is very investor driven. And I think that's going to remain the case until there are government mandates on how to do it. But then the second thing that I hear was, well, we actually were being, so this is public company, we got contacted because we had a poor rating on ESG from one of the rating companies. And so they only then in hindsight, this, so first of all, the ratings agency that was rating them never reached out to them, never asked for information that was not on their website or in their public filings, and instead just like assumed the worst as they were assigning a grade. So companies need to be aware of that because in this particular company's case, what they had to do was backtrack and say, whoa, we're doing some of these things. We're actually better than they say we are. But then for the first time ever, they appointed a ES- head of ESG and created an ESG report. So now the norm, particularly for publicly traded companies, even if you're not mandated by you know SEC rules or things like that now, is you're going to have an ESG report on your website. And you're going to have that because potential investors are looking at it, or at the very least, you don't want a rating agency to just say, you know, arbitrarily without really diving into the facts, like you're bad on ESG. Now, Lindsay and Bob mentioned how it's, it's, we're starting to see that, that movement a lot in the halls of our clients. And, you know, for the first time, probably six or seven months ago, you know, when we're sitting down with, with underwriters presenting the risk to them, they all start asking, well, what are your, especially if they're publicly traded, what are your ESG initiatives? And it's like, what does ESG have to do with underwriting insurance? But 
it's just part of their, it's like become part of their fabric now. It's just, it's an interesting time and shift in investor sentiment, right, wrong, or indifferent. And I think from that perspective, like right now, there's no consistency. There's no single accepted standard. So from that perspective, it's important. Like it's going to be better for all companies when that exists. And so you could follow the European standards, which are further along. Um, But that's one positive thing I see from a potential SEC or at the very least accounting standards board being accepted at the norm. Because one of the other exercises I'm going to have my students do is, hey, here are four different ways that you could report on and rate someone according to ESG from all these different sources. Like, we'll take one company and we're going to look at how they get very different ratings and very different grades depending on which standard you use. So that's a you want to be a little cheeky with your uh, clients, you can say, well, well, which reporting standards do you, do you, you know, do you use? Do you prefer that we adhere to? <laughs> no, that's a good point. And, and especially with me being in Texas and working with a lot of energy companies, it, it's not that they're needing to do anything differently. They just need to explain how they're doing it inside those buckets now of E, S, and G. So they almost, it's almost a checking the box thing, just confirming what they we're already doing before. So that's interesting. I know I was going to say, I did read something fascinating and this isn't going to be as good of a story as it could, because I don't remember the name, but there was a Texas state body that invests um, or contracts and had adopted it. No, no, I think maybe, maybe it was a state law that got passed, but in any case, they had to adopt ESG guidance. And they actually said, this is a problem because some of the companies that we're investing in or contracted in, we're, we're going to have to cut them out of here and they're Texas companies. And this is what we're designed to do. So there's there's definitely unintended consequences of that as well. No, I agree. And, and back to your work in your space, one of the things that, that Bob and I talk a lot about and you know, scratch our heads a little bit, when we're working with clients on the health insurance side of things, And we really start diving into the amount of money being spent at the pharmacy and how quickly with a little analysis, if you changed one drug from X to Y and it could do the exact same thing, the compounding effect of that one change across thousands of employees is astronomical. So back to the idea of these drug companies having to get a return as quickly as possible, as big as possible, it perhaps the negative impact of the, the social good and the social impact. Like how, how do we begin to reverse that in the United States so that these drugs aren't so expensive? Yeah, so you've hit on something else amazing that we haven't even talked about yet. So one of the other things I do is that I serve as board president of a group called Incubate, which is a policy advocacy organization that educates state federal officials on the importance of venture capital in the healthcare industry. And the hot topic that often comes up is drug pricing. And, uh, you know, I'm sure your, your, most of your listeners know that the Medicare negotiation finally was included in the Senate bill, which has been percolating for many, many years. And it will be very interesting to see how that plays out. I know investors, venture capitalists who are spooked by it and have said, like, we're not going to be able to invest in small molecules anymore because small molecules are pills, basically anything that's in pill form, sometimes topical too, but the simplest type of drug, because, you know, with Medicare's purchasing power, they can negotiate that down to such a low price that it's not going to be profitable. I mean, this is a really complex issue. So, so what I what I do with my incubate hat on is we try to teach even elected officials, congresspeople and the like, that drugs don't just get invented by NIH and then have pharma slap a big price tag on them, which you might be surprised to learn some people actually think it's that simple. So what we need to, we need to very clearly talk about the fact that there are, there's a lot that happens in between and there are a lot of failures. And so the 
first you do, you know, preclinical testing on cells, then you go to animals, then you finally get approval, you you know, put in an IND with the FDA, you can test in humans. And even then you got to do three sets of clinical trials before you can apply to have your drug approved to go to patients. These can be extremely expensive and take many, many years to go through this entire process. What the, the answer has typically been from pharma is, well, you don't see all the failures. So for every drug that makes it to patients, there are 20 or so that started, were invented, got tested up to some extent, and we just lost that money. Now, I know from Roy Van Sciences that a lot of those, it doesn't mean the drug was a failure. It means you stopped working on it because that's, we went shopping for those and built new companies around them. And we now have five drugs so far approved and being sold to patients for deals that we did that we took things off the shelf from other companies. Lindsay, hold on real quick. I just want to, so explain that a little bit more. So you guys are going in, you're going to these companies and saying, Hey, we know you have these things in the shelf that they're not getting pushed through. Let us take this to fruition and take it to market. Yeah. So, so the Royvians has shifted its business model. Now they have an entire division. They acquired a company that was devoted to AI and tech enabled drug discovery, meaning designing the drugs from scratch. So not so much um, picking up existing drugs, but during the early years when I was leading the deal team, that's all we did. And yes, we would know exactly, you can find out, you know, sometimes it took creativity because a lot of times when a company stops working on a drug, they don't publicly announce that. So you might have to see, oh, something used to be reported on clinicaltrials.gov and now it's not anymore. Or, hey, we see these patents were filed and then nothing's happened since then. We can't find that drug actually being moved forward. So there are different ways you can investigate this, but that was exactly the business proposition. We would say, we're interested in this. We know you have it, give it to us. And if we, we will fund the further development of it. And if we succeed, we will share the upside with you. So usually it's a royalty or there's milestones. That was, that's the traditional structure. And that is how we launched. We launched 16, well, more than that now, but 16 when I was in that role. And uh, like I said, five drugs now approved. So, you know, five, at least five happy partners, I think. <laughs> but but here's, here's a fascinating thing. We, when we went into this, my naivete, so part, one of many, many jobs I've had and the responsibilities I've had as we grew as a company was to explore whether it made more sense for us to commercialize, meaning sell the drugs and create that through a single subsidiary or as part of each subsidiary. And one of the things we did was we brought in pricing consultants. And I and some other of my naive colleagues who hadn't grown up in the pharma industry said, you know, we don't like this system of rebates because how it works now is it's a very high list price. It's very difficult to determine what so that the pharma company will set the list price, but then there's these distributors in the middle and it's very difficult to determine what the actual price paid is. It's always a discount off of list. List is fairly meaningless, but there's a rebate system where it's like it's splitting the difference. It's sharing in the, in the rebate. And then there's, you know, then it goes to the insurers and then to the patient and there's no opacity about how that actually works. That's something I would frankly love to see clarity on what, how drug pricing actually works. And if, you know, if there's silver linings to Medicare potentially getting more involved in things like this, that would be one of them. But what we said is, well, we don't want to play this rebate game. We would actually just like to set a list price that is reasonable and will make us a healthy profit and not do these kickbacks and, you know, secret discounts and stuff like that. And I kid you not, the, 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 the pricing consultants smiled at us and we're basically like, oh, bless your heart. <laughs> so, they were from Illinois. So I mean, uh, Indiana. So they didn't say that explicitly, but that was very much the sentiment. Like, oh, you just don't get it. That's so cute. And then they went up to our whiteboard and showed us how if we were to set a low price, we would know no insurers would put us on their formulary. Formulary is the list of approved drugs. Because this idea of discounts and rebates is so embedded into the system that it's pretty meaningless. Here's another thing. I mean, that, that was crazy. And this is one of the Seema Verma who was running CMS. I think this was a change she made, but at least it was under HHS during the last administration, a very positive change was 
previously, so the, you know, also with your insurance card, your insurance company, you'll, you'll have a set price for generics. When you go to the, so I'm talking about me as a patient, I go to the pharmacy, set price for generics, set price for brand name drugs. Sometimes the actual generic price was less is less than what the insurer says you have to pay. So let's say it's $20 if it's generic, it could be $5. It used to be illegal for your pharmacist to tell you it was cheaper for you to not use your insurance. And that was changed during the last administration. That just blew my mind when I when I heard that because the patient then is paying 15 extra dollars when, and, and someone knows that standing there and they're not allowed to tell you that. So that's changed. Now your pharmacist can say, actually for this one, the price is so low, don't even use your insurance, just pay it out of pocket. That's a good change. But it all goes to the same point, which is I think better transparency for how drug pricing works can help people set up a better system and really you know, manage more appropriately the costs at every level to the patients, to the employers, to the insurers. Now, Everyone in that chain is going to hate me for saying that because it's it's like that because people are benefiting from the lack of transparency. But just looking at it holistically, that's not the way a system should be operating, especially a system that is accounting for so much of our national government spend and increasing all the time. And by the way, you know, the, the point of the healthcare business is to help people keep people healthy. And we're taking so much advantage of that. You, you like, I've heard that people run through the whole, the drug costs down to where it gets sold from and all that. And you see how many hands are in the cookie jar there and taking a little bit of piece of all of this. Is, it's incredible. And then I think it begs the question of, you know, you said the words earlier, a healthy profit. Like, what does that mean? And what should that mean? And, you know, how do we define that? Because we are in business to make money, but at the expense of, I think, so many different things when you think about that entire system that's out there. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, the I think historically the insurance companies have not actually been focused on keeping people healthy. There's an assumption that you're going to be with your insurer for a short period of time, a few years, and then you're going to move on. So it's very much someone else's problem. They just need to manage your costs today. But there are some insurance companies that are starting to pay attention to SDOH, social determinants of health, kind of get ahead of the curve with nutrition, with preventive care. I am a mother, I have five children, and I remember that when I went to get prenatal vitamins for my first pregnancy, which can are like not just good to take, but prevent spina bifida, you know, there's all these known benefits of taking them. It was, it was not covered under insurance and it was very expensive. And I remember thinking, wow, that's amazing. They won't pay this dollar amount, which yeah, it's not cheap, but it's not crazy. And instead they will take a chance that I have a child that has a much more serious condition and then we'll worry about the insurance coverage. So very, this, you know, it's just short-sighted decision-making historically on the way the insurance is set up. And I hope that will change too. And like I said, I am aware of certain big insurers who have now dedicated SDOH teams and are really looking at ways of over a longer period of time managing the health, not just the costs of their patients. So in thinking about all that, Lindsay, if your mission, and it should be so many mores, is this idea of blending social good, call it, you know, how, if, if you were putting all of the ingredients needed into a pot to have a successful company that, that can push society forward for some kind of greater good, but yet still be profitable, like, tell us what those building blocks look like. Well, the good news is there's a really big supply of young social entrepreneurs Along the lines of me saying, I think that the next generation of investors, and by that I mean family offices, family foundations, the younger generations. I've I've met many and I've had many of the older generations say the younger kids in our family care more about this social hood. The same is true on the entrepreneur side. There, there is no shortage of entrepreneurs that want to do something good for society. So that's ingredient number one, but we have it. I think the getting expertise who, who, is, who are interested in helping and working on that space, so not the entrepreneur themselves, but support, whether it's advisors like I provide through Royvate Social Ventures or employees, 
also not a shortage. We recently hired an analyst. We got over 100 resumes in like two days. And you know, the cover letters that came in were like, wow, I love investing. I love finance. I hate that the only thing I'm working on is like, is this a high enough return threshold? You guys are so refreshing because you are taking into account, like, you know, part of our investment criteria, which we're hoping to publicize on, you know, we, we want to share as, as white papers and thought leadership, all the stuff we're doing, but it's very much positive externalities. What, you know, what is the, the benefit to society? Is it, can, can it have an outsized effect? So we're looking at things like that, like scaling, and of course, we're looking at, is it a profitable business? Is it, you know, is it likely to succeed? Do they have the requisite expertise uh, internally or through help to do it? But again, so I think, you know, part two is like other people to work on these projects. That's there too. And that's very, very encouraging. It really is the the finance piece that I think is the is the hurdle. And so, it doesn't have to be, you know, pure venture capital or more traditional finance sources. There are very creative things being done, even by like some of the large investment banks that I'm familiar with, where they are setting up large projects with a social aim in mind and tranching the funding. So there's a tranche. The first tranche would be me, for example, it's charitable donations or, you know, it could be charitable investment to get the company proof of showing proof of concept and off the ground. Then one of the most creative things I I learned was this middle tranche, which is the impact investor space. What I was telling you about having difficulty, our, our companies having difficulties, just skipping right to traditional models. But one fascinating way that it has been done is a hybrid of investing, you know, for-profit traditional investing and a partnership with a foundation. So what this investment bank set up was a, uh, a guarantee return to their private wealth clients, you know, family offices that wanted to go in on this socially minded investment. And there were incentives for the, the, basically from the, from the company's perspective, success metrics reduced the interest from the investors. And then one of the big philanthropic foundations agreed to fill that gap to make the investors whole. So that from the philanthropy's perspective, it was a perfect fit because they want to see success in these social areas, but you could still get the investor money in by saying, don't worry, you're going to get the return you expect. And this charity is going to you know chip in the rest. So that was really fascinating. So there's other ways to to do things. And I, I hope to see more creativity in that space. But I don't know that, that we're going to be able to convince any of the existing private equity funds or venture capitalists to accept a smaller return. And maybe we don't need to. <laughs> and Lindsay, is that, I mean, when you, you talked about some of the hurdles, when you talk about this social investing or this impact investing, like what are the main hurdles that you see to success in that, that type of outlook? You're, are you talking about a company basis or like a, a holistic? I guess both, right? Because I think I think there's a part of the, I'll say in the micro piece that you can do this in the way that you're doing it. But then at the macro level, like how do we get it to a point where it's having a huge impact rather than just smaller impact, right? Yeah. I mean, scaling requires money, right? So we have a company we've invested in. Their technology is so cool. They can, in the size of a galley kitchen manufacture a variety of more advanced drugs and it's changeable. So you could make um, a biologic, which is something injectable, then you could switch and make a vaccine. You can, you should eventually be able to make insulin in it. And so this is a really fantastic way for health deserts in the US or lower middle income countries to support the needs of their own population in a way that needs to be, you know, that is tailored to their specific demand. But getting this off the ground, I mean, it's like they, you know, they have a couple of lab clients so far and turning this into something that is like the sales force, I'd say, like it's not there, right? So they are doing their best to get one-off partnerships. They now have a quote in from a country in Africa that is interested, but like they they would need money to hire us. Like what they should do is have pretty good funding, hire a sales force, try to scale this out, and they're lacking in that. So at some point, you probably do need 
larger funds available. Now, maybe something like the model I talked about that this investment bank put in would work for them. But that is what I see. It's kind of like skipping. I like the the motto of go big or go home. So something that's going to help a small neighborhood. Fantastic. That's not what I'm investing in. I'm looking for things that could be scaled out. But the the challenge is finding the right way to scale it out. And I can't write those checks. And that's really not my area. Like I want them to graduate to something else. So that's an area I think that I haven't tackled yet. And the companies that I'm working with haven't haven't figured it out yet either. So Lindsay, taking it back up to more of a 30,000 foot worldview and specifically kind of geopolitical viewpoints based on your amazing career thus far. I mean, we've got we've got a war that won't go away in Ukraine and a humanitarian crisis as a result of that because they can't get the wheat and the crops out properly. You've got Afghanistan making the news again. You've got the FBI raiding a former president's large home in southern Florida. Uh, just from your perspective, you know, what is your take on the world right now and where we're headed? That's a dark question. <laughs> <laughs> Been saving that one. I I would I would call myself like in, in general, I am a hopeful cynic. And so I can't help but feel very, very cynical. And every day it's like something else. And it's like, yeah, of course. And you expect the worst from people in situations and your worst hopes are often exceeded by people being even worse and you know, than you thought they would be. Yet, I am also a very firm believer, like in human potential, and you know, what, this is this plays into like being a federal prosecutor. One of the things I learned, I didn't know what to expect going into that job, and I used to have a very simplified notion of, okay, there are bad guys, and then there's everyone else. And I don't, I don't have that view at all anymore. I mean, obviously there are, there are sociopaths, right? <laughs> and like, those are bad guys, but that's not most of the people, even the people who come into the, the criminal justice system. What I saw instead was people seeing an opportunity to cross the line, wherever that line is, taking it and getting away with it. And then they do it again and again and again. And they always justify, everyone justifies their actions. That's another thing I learned. And very few people think they are doing wrong, or even if they know they are technically doing wrong, they don't think they're harming others. So I would have, I'd have a big identity theft ring that I would run around for very sophisticated and debrief the defendants when they pleaded guilty. And I heard no person lost a dollar. This, all this stuff was insured. The companies make too much money. I just took a little bit of that. Right. And that was like hearing stuff like that over and over again was really fascinating to me. And it's made me much more generous, I would say, to all the terrible things that I see. I don't feel any better about it. And I wish people more often chose an unselfish path, a helpful path, a generous path. But I now understand more about people make micro decisions. And they find, and we all find ourselves in situation, meaning the world, that are a result of a lot of micro decisions that everyone felt very comfortable were justified. And so that's kind of how I balance my worldview. And then, of course, in those rare instances when you see exceptional instances of human behavior, I like to celebrate those. And I try to surround myself with people who do that more often than the norm. I was going to say, you know, I was doing some research before and I think I'd pulled up something that maybe you had written. There was a question, a couple of the questions I think that maybe you'd posed that I think are really interesting and something that I ask myself a lot, which is how can I do the most good and where do I choose to spend that time? Like those are the things that I think about as I'm building, you know, my career and where am I thinking from a philanthropy standpoint? Where do I do that? And it's like really hard for me as you go through that because of like a lot of what you just talked about, right? So how do you, how do you think about that? Or what advice would you give to our listeners of that's something that a lot of people are go through in their life of where should I be spending that time, that money? So are, is your question, are you asking about like, like philanthropically or just in general as we structure our lives? 
Well, let's let's go to philanthropically first and then go from there. Yeah, I get asked about this a lot from, I mean, even individual philanthropists who are who want to make a difference in a certain sector and have been disappointed by giving money even to big esteemed institutions and not seeing anything come of it. And so when I am asked that, I, you know, I, from, I sit on the MIT Board of Trustees. So I, um, in several of the visiting committees, you get to know professors there and things. And so I know that even places like that, there are each individual professors might be scrambling for money. And so the advice I give is, well, if you find, if you're giving to a large institution, then find the specific researcher or researchers that are working in the area that you care about and give the money right to their lab or right to their research team, help them scale, help them. You're going to have a, you're going to have a direct relationship you're going to see results because you're going to be informed on what's going on in that particular lab. But one problem, I mean, so now I'm focusing on medical research. I'm not talking about philanthropy generally is there's so much amazing science and inventions. And this is probably true more broadly than biology or, you know, chemistry or you name it that will never see commercialization. They just never get translated out of the lab. And that's a tricky problem to solve because most of the time, the researchers, the pure researchers are not thinking about application, real world applications, and maybe they shouldn't be, right? That's more of an engineering role. But I've talked to researchers actually in Texas. I've toured some of the great facilities there, and they've found some really cool things in their lab. And we say, well, what, you know, what conditions would you pursue in this? And they like, they don't even know the first thing about answering that question. And even though they do, they've done some animal testing, for example, it's not at all been done in a way that the FDA would accept. So if you're coming in from a venture capital perspective, it's like, wow, that's super fascinating. It was a fantastic conversation. There's no way I can invest in that because they don't even, it's not even I can give them money at their lab. They don't even know how to, or and they don't want to learn how to do the animal testing in a way that I can then use as I'm building my application to move forward with this. So... I think there's a lot of opportunity lost there. And I think about that and I have some initiatives that are trying to move it forward, but it's, it's a tough one. It's a big problem. I would think government funding is appropriate there. They call it translational. It actually has a, has a nickname in the biopharma industry called the Valley of Death. And it very much is. Now, if I'm talking more broadly about charities, one thing I was very focused on as I was building my team is I wanted people who were doers who, so it means they came from the business side because I think a lot of charities have people who are dedicated to the mission and they're just dedicated nonprofit professionals. And that's amazing because there are some areas for sure that need that type of, I call it band-aids. I don't mean it in a disrespectful way, but it's like people need food, right? People need this. And that it's a it's a service that can be provided on an ongoing basis to to meet an urgent need that is not at all intended to solve the problem. And impact-minded philanthropists. So I think you're probably talking about my Chronicle of Philanthropy article that I wrote. It was if you're an impact-minded philanthropist, you should look for things like Roy Vant Social Ventures to partner with and donate your money to because we're tackling things from a business approach. We're looking at groups and projects that are trying to get at the root issue and make a, make a broader impact rather than being a salve for a, for a major problem. Both are important. Um, and it really just depends on what the, what the philanthropist motivation are. But if you're just looking in a more traditional way, things like the charity ratings that tell you how much goes to overhead, how much goes to donations, that that's telling because if a lot of the money is just being used for us, you know, operating expenses and, and overhead and fundraising, then it's just an engine that's trying to keep running and then, and, you know, doing good, obviously like it's a required part of the mission, but it doesn't seem to be the major part of the initiative. That's one of the things that we, we have to offer at Roy Van Social Ventures. We set it up this way. Roy Van Sciences covers all the overhead so that outside donations are used hundred percent for our programs. And that was part of why, you know, we wanted to reinforce the, we focused on impact and that's where we want donor money to be used for. Lindsay, you mentioned you 
wanted people who are doers. I really like that. You know, being the the first person in your family to go to college and thinking about our, our younger listeners, Johnny and I were talking about this before we all got on. You know, so much of these younger generations, you know, for two years being at home, not being in social environments in school, you know, you, you meet these young kids and they don't know how to look you in the eye and they don't know how to shake your hand. You know, what what advice do you have to young kids coming up today and and how to be successful? Well, I think, you know, this is I'm gonna date myself as a Gen X person. I am from, you know, the the digital or the the analog native generation, right? So like we, I remember going online for the first time in middle school. And so I think, I guess the punchline is that the in-person social skills are going to be less important going forward. So I can even see this in my own children. My two youngest children, I think are what you call meta native. So they grew up only knowing, well, yeah, of course you have an avatar and you can dress your avatar however you want. You can make it look however you want. And it's really fascinating once you, once when I was first introduced to that concept of like the generational devices, because then you have the, the digital natives, which always grew up with a Facebook account. But now this is one step further where you grow up with a separate online persona. So I actually think and predict that, that the kids who are young today, they're going to like their, their online persona will be just as important. So the social skills are maybe not as important, which is fascinating because I'm very much like, we need to get together in person. And I'm thinking that's becoming a little bit quaint. Now the loneliness and things is, is an entirely different, different issue. I said, one good thing about having five children during COVID was they were never lonely. <laughs> one bad thing is like never in my wildest dreams did I think that of the many complications from having a family that large, it would be, and they're all doing schooling at the same time in my house when I am working. <laughs> so, so that was fascinating from, from my perspective. But I think th- there's, there's a lot of good changes being forced by younger generations that I am very excited about. This idea of we, the gig economy, right? Like we work when it makes sense for as long as it makes sense. And, and the younger people are very comfortable with short-term jobs, fellowships. They're more attuned with mental health. I mean, obviously this isn't everyone, but this is the trends I'm seeing. Taking breaks for mental health, meaning like even sabbaticals at a pretty young age. All of those are very good things. And I think will, will lead to greater life fulfillment. Here's another trend I think is really interesting. I have very smart friends, very well-educated friends who don't have children yet, but are in their 30s and have said, I will be surprised if my child goes to college. Because I think that the pace of technology, so technology is everything, right? So anyone who wants to be successful going forward, I say this all the time in biology too, I say computational biology, because it's not a doctor's and clinicians are no longer the ones who have a dispositive voice on is a clinical trial, is a drug development being run as quickly as if and efficiently as possible. Now there's tech concerns, right? Like, cause so you can do monitoring, you can use AI to design the drugs, you can screen the patients, you know, faster and predict who, you know, who to better predict who to include. So I would tell everyone to, to study that. The pace of technology is moving so fast that nowadays it is, I went to the Milken conference uh, not long ago and one of the panels was talking about how a lot of the tech savvy students um, are thinking, well, just get a certification. I don't actually need to do a four-year degree. I can just do this you know, crash course and say, I know this aspect of AI and then I can go get a very high paying job. I will be very curious to see if, if our... I guess the the sum is I think our our notions of like larger social structures such as in person interaction for your degrees you know this traditional path I think it's being upended to a certain extent and I think it, there's there are some good things along those lines as well as some challenges it was going to be challenging for us as the older people for sure. <laughs> Lindsay, you mentioned the mental health piece. And what that means. Do you want to, do we want to go down that route, Michael, Lindsay, and just circle back on that? Cause that can be an interesting topic. Yeah. I'm happy to dive into it more. I mean, like, I don't know exactly what you're planning to ask, but like, well, no, I think for me, it's like, I see it in that younger generation, right? I see mental health as 
something that is more and more paid attention to now with the younger generation. I see it at our organization. I see it at myself even and others. So, you know, what are your thoughts around that mental health space? And I think you're seeing a lot of investment in that world. And what does that from your lens look like? It, I think going back to your prior question on like the state of the world and my status as a hopeful cynic, I think mental health is one of the biggest things that stops people from reaching their full potential as humans. And they're, it's really mind blowing if you think about it, like humans have been a lot around, I mean, I guess evolutionarily speaking, not very long, but it seems like long enough where we shouldn't just be having to have conversations like this. So I know many people, even my own age, who grew up as we don't talk about that. Like there's, you know, there are problems and we just keep it quiet. We don't want to bring shame to ourselves or embarrassment to the family. And it's just such a toxic way to live. And it causes so much harm and damage in human relationships. And really, like I said, reaching full potential. So I, when I grew up in the upper Midwest, maybe this is true for you guys too, there was a lot of bullying and it was just a thing and you would just put up with it. I mean, I remember getting kids, seeing kids getting beat up, certainly name calling, all this sort of stuff. We had a sixth grader, no, 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 it was eighth grader, eighth grader when I was in middle school who killed himself because of bullying. And uh, it was just a tragic story, actually. He regretted it, got on the school bus, told the bus driver that he had taken all these pills, got him to the hospital, but it had been in his system already, then he died. And so then you have my kids, I see, where they literally, so DC public schools, they have a mental health component built into their curriculum. So they're teaching my second grade boy, now now is rising third grader, but different emotions. They were literally teaching the kids to talk about their emotions, to recognize their emotions and to deal with them appropriately. Now I'm going to skip to an older story actually, which really reinforced this, particularly since I had seen a lot as a, a federal prosecutor, but we, I don't know if you ever got to do this, Michael, we toured Sing Sing occasionally. So the warden, commissioner, whatever you call the the title is of the guy who runs the prison was friendly with our group and would once a year have a tour. And I went to one of those. And then we, you know, we toured, we met some of the inmates, we debriefed with him afterwards. And what he said was the vast majority of prisoners I have are here because they were never taught how to deal with their negative emotions properly. They're not bad guys. They just didn't have role models. They feel anger. They react in a way that they think is the appropriate way to act. They can't talk about it. He said that, and then actually someone else we was, uh, was related to the parole program. And so they said the biggest thing they had to coach people on when it was, they should be eligible for parole is the idea that they would go before the parole board and talk about their feelings and express remorse and, and, and putting into words how they have reflected on this and what changes they would make incredibly difficult to the point where some men just couldn't do it or wouldn't do it. And so that also then makes me hopeful that as we pay more attention to this and as it's really, it's okay to talk about it. I love every time I hear celebrities, I'm a F1 fan and I just read this awesome Vanity Fair article about Lewis Hamilton and he was really open about, you know, struggles and bullying he had experienced and sitting in his room and crying about it by himself when he was growing up. And I think it's so powerful for people with those platforms to be very open, not just about all the successes in their lives, but the struggles because we're human and we all have those struggles. And it's really, really encouraging to see the younger generation being taught from day one. These are normal. You're a human. Talk about it. Here are ways we deal with it. And this is just a normal part of being an evolved human. And so I, I'm very, very excited about this, but it's obviously a super important topic that needs to have a lot of attention on it all the time. Lindsay, thanks for, for sharing that. That was that was an insightful and deep answer. We actually do have a uh, North Texas Alder event coming up where we're visiting a prison and the warden and the, the parole board there. So it's going to be great insight. Are you going to attend that? I'm trying to. I'm, I got to move a couple of things around, but I'm I'm doing my best. Yeah, that would that would be great. I would. Someone should bring up the same topic there. <laughs> no, absolutely. So you know, I think as as we move towards closing this this wonderful conversation out with you, Lindsay, that the mental 
health aspect is is, is so important. The amount of, of mass shootings that we're seeing seems like almost on a daily basis now, you know, getting to these affected individuals earlier when the signs show up and having them feel like they're in a safe environment to talk about whatever these these demons that are are getting their their grasp around them i think more than anything that's probably the only way out of this is it it does start with with mental health but creating an environment in which they feel safe to talk about it because i don't think they do right now which is why they're reaching out the way that they are so we got a lot of work to do yeah, when, I mean, one thing I always tell my children whenever they're upset about things or I can sense reluctance in talking about something is anything you are feeling, ton of people feel it. So like just the, that's that's what I think can go a long way. I mean, I don't know the how, right? Because obviously these individuals are in unsafe environments where they don't think they can have those conversations. But I feel like a lot of the extreme actions comes from a deep sense of being alone or the only one who feels this way. And that is just never true. And that's what we need people to understand fundamentally. So, Lindsay, we always end the the episode with a a question that we like to ask. And, you know, there's this this saying uh, that I've heard since I was little that it's not what you know. It's who you know. But then Bob and I like to flip it around and say it's not who you know but who knows you? And so in thinking about this, this podcast as a medium that's capturing this amazing story of Lindsay and all these initiatives that you have and these lives that you've touched, what do you want people to know about you? I am someone who always tries to use what they know to attempt to do new things in ways that are better than the old ways. So it's not always nonprofit. It's not always socially focused, but I'm always striving to learn and improve. And I love meeting other people who kind of operate that same way. So maybe to to bring it full circle, I can meet some of your like-minded listeners at the TEDx event in October in Dallas. Very nice. Yeah, we'll we'll put a plug out there and get as many of them as 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 we can. It's it's going to be great to see you up there on stage and and doing your thing. So we're proud of you. Thank you. It's been so fun. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Thanks for all the sharing. It's been a fun conversation. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Climb. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing. And if you know someone who you would think would enjoy the podcast, feel free to share this with them. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.